you are listening to The Janine Garner Show. Janine is a leading expert on leadership and driving influence through networking and collaboration, passionate about bringing brilliant people together to achieve remarkable results. Join Janine Garner as she shares insights, interviews and conversations, and let's together make the remarkable happen. Welcome to the latest episode of Unleashing Brilliance. I'm your host, Janine Garner, and it's an absolute pleasure to welcome you to today's show. Now, today we're having a chat with the incredible Michelle Cox. Michelle is passionate about living an unconventional life, and she encourages others to embrace imperfection more. In 2019, she actually founded a new company called the Wabi Sabi series. And this company includes a podcast and a book series of short, impactful books that center around topics that we don't often talk about. But before that, she has a 25 years of experience in executive leadership positions. Her career boasts a wealth of in-depth experience in a variety of national and global exec roles across a whole heap of industries. In addition to being a CEO, a COO, and a CMO for several well-known brands, she's an entrepreneur at heart and has acquired and started a number of companies throughout her career as well. Now she takes her corporate turned creative venture even further. She actually continues to sit on four boards. So she's absolutely loving that corporate and continued strategic work. But from a creative perspective in the past year, it's seen Michelle transform what started as a ceramics hobby into a successful new business making tableware for clients. A few uh, expanding on this, last November, she opened Sydney's newest maker's studio and retail store, Atelier 9 in Avalon, with the purpose of connecting community through creative endeavors. Michelle is passionate about all of us embracing imperfection more and challenges us to understand that we only have one life, this life right now, and so it's up to us to take control. Please enjoy this latest episode of Unleashing Brilliance with the incredible Michelle Cox. Michelle, it is such a pleasure to have you on my podcast today. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Janine. I'm uh, absolutely excited to be here and to chat with you and just a shame we couldn't be in person. Just how far away are we? I know we don't live far away from each other and what's what I love about how we've connected is I think we've been moving in each other's worlds probably for a couple of years a number of years plus we've got lots of mutual friends and yet it was only recently that we actually I can't even remember why we reached out and connected and uh Already you've gifted me so much in terms of thinking through what the next steps are for my career personally over the next three, five years. And it just always amazes me how people come into your world at certain times for a reason. So, uh, yeah, very grateful to have have you here, Michelle. Oh, no, ditto. And I think it is funny that, we're, yeah, I, re- I remember meeting you. I came to one of your events with LBD, like, I don't even remember how many years ago that was. It was quite a while, maybe six years ago. Wow. 
six or seven. And, uh, and then I came up and introduced myself to you. And then we met at another event. And yeah, so we, our paths had sort of crossed then, yeah. but then we sort of, then I didn't see you for a long time. And uh, yeah, I love the fact that we've got so many mates and different connections. And, and here we are. It's, um, it's absolute delight to see here you. Here we are, digitally. We're just going to all have to get together in person, aren't we? We'll find yeah, an I can't wait to have a uh, cocktail with you sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> some, some event, some retreat, some local bar. And uh, yeah, gosh, it will be amazing. I, I tell you, I'm so looking forward to seeing people in real life versus this screen, that's for sure. So let's, I'm so excited to share your story because you you have such an interesting uh, life that you're living now um, from that, you know, corporate executive business builder to now merging it with creative. And I can't wait to share more about that. But before we do, can we just uh, do some quick fire questions so our audience can get to know a little bit more about you? So first of all, uh, for our global audience, where, where are you from originally? I'm a Melbourne girl. Yeah, um, deep south of uh, Australia. So grew up in Melbourne um, with uh, to a very uh, probably low to middle class family actually, um, but never really thought that I went without, to be yeah. honest. But uh, in the burbs of Melbourne is where wow. I first came from. Melbourne and now living in Sydney. Yeah, so I'm uh, in Palm Beach in the northern beaches um, of Sydney, yeah, glorious area and feel very lucky to live here in the current lockdown climate, I must admit. Beautiful part of the world. Can you remember what your very first job was? Can I remember? How could I forget? Oh, really? <laughs> uh, I think as a kid I was always entrepreneurial. I was one of those, and I don't know where that came from, um, maybe just maybe coming from no money that I was always like, I want those jeans or I want that thing. And my mum's like, money doesn't grow on trees. That was her favourite saying. So I'm like, hmm, okay, well, how do I get this stuff that I can, you know, do the things I want to do? So I was always having a you know, a stall or, you know, the lemonade stand or doing random things. But my brother um, got sick of his paper round job at 10. So I remember taking that over and saying, well, I'll do it then. Uh, this was, he was about 18 months older than me. And um, yeah, probably not as, um, as driven as even I was as a kid. And then I got a um, that fast became a, a babysitting job, I think when I was sort of, you know, 12, 13 or so. Um, but I humbugged. We had a really big sort of hypermarket, like a supermarket that had like, you know, 20 checkouts and stuff right near our house. And I humbugged the manager there for years to give me a job, but I was too young. So the day I turned 14 and three quarters, then I was like, Andrea, I've been waiting. She's like, all right, you've been <laughs> tenacious I will give you a job and uh, I worked for the supermarket for it was you know Woolworths or actually it was Safeway in those days and I worked there for four or five years all through my high school years you know into my early years of university and um, became a you know a manager like the it's they say that about leaders and I won a checkout chick of the year award <laughs> so <laughs> I remember it vividly and I always hold that, um, you know, the the supermarket and those jobs in high stead because they taught me the fundamentals around customer service from a very young age and they were ruthless, you know, of how we teach and, you know, treat the customers. But they were good lessons that I learned right from, um, you know, my first jobs. 
It's so funny because my very first job was a paper round too. And uh, in England, the letterboxes are actually in the front door. And I can still remember the, the fear of going up to front doors to put the newspapers through and the dogs that would literally snatch the newspapers from me. And I was so scared. Um, and particularly in England, when at three o'clock it goes dark, that my mum ended up having to come and do my paper round with me. And then from there, I uh, I ended up working in a fish and chip shop of all places. But oh, you're absolutely right. It's the um, that that customer service experience from the start really does sort of stand you in yeah, good stead if you build businesses. Yeah. And I had some yeah. cranky, man, you know, um, supervisors and managers. I remember that were really tough. It was this Scottish guy that I could hardly understand in in the supermarket. But again, he taught me some fundamental things that I've still never, I've never forgotten. You know, all those years later, and um, you know, in all the businesses I've run and stuff over time, and the things that I would teach others, I'd maybe do it in a bit more gentle way than he did. But um, they were good <laughs> lessons to have from a, you know, fourteen, fifteen year old. So you, you've touched on there that the entrepreneurial spirit in you started really young and, you know, you, you've got a portfolio of businesses that you've built, sold, et cetera. What, what do you think it was about your, your childhood or your community that, that unlocked that entrepreneurial spirit? Yeah, I think um, I actually do feel it was probably, as I said, whilst I came from a you know load of sort of working class family, my parents both worked like two jobs even. I remember, you know, there was four kids and they never had any money. And I remember we used to go without a lot of stuff, or there were just things that, you know, I had mates that were quite wealthy. I think, you know, you don't think about that when you're a young kid, but there was just things that they had that we didn't and I'd always ask, well, can I have this or can I do that? And, you know, my parents are like, no, we can't afford to do that. And so mum and dad never shied away from that. But they also instilled in me a confidence, I guess, that I could do anything. And they, you know, my parents, I'm an absolute mould of both of my parents. My mum was, you know, more creative and artistic. She ran away from home when she was 14 because she lived in an abusive sort of family life. Um, and fended for herself from 14 on, which was extraordinary when you think about it. And um, my dad was an engineer. So the two of them, you know, I'm the like I'm an artistic at my heart, but um, I'm very pragmatic, good financial and, um, you know, business brain. And so whilst they sort of had their own businesses and did their own things, um, I kind of grew up in that environment that you could do anything try anything, be anything, you know, my dad encouraged me phenomenally to, you know, do any sport. I played cricket and football and raced motorbikes and did all the things that girls generally didn't do. But he was, you know, he was actually quite ahead of his time and um, both incredibly spiritual as well, both of them, but I didn't quite realise that until my dad had passed um, how spiritual he was. Mm -hmm. Um, So I feel that I think that was just instilled in me. Um, you know, I was always a curious kid, always wanted to, you know, know how things worked. Um, and again, dad really instilled in me, well, both of them probably that life is about, you know, lifelong learning. You can never learn too much or you can never know everything. And so, you know, take that as an opportunity and ask lots of questions. And, you know, I was a, one of those painful kids <laughs> would ask, how does it work? But why do we do that? Why, you know, how can I do, why do I have to go that way? Whatever. And I was always curious, but um, yeah, they really encouraged that in me. And I'm sure that's where that entrepreneurial element came. And I think still today, even when I was my first business um, that I bought into, you know, I was in my early twenties 
and um, we, you know, basically put, I had a house at that stage and we put that kind of on the line and I worked out in my head that um, what I call a red line and I still use it now, that if I lost everything that, you know, if I, in terms of putting sales, you know, all my sh- um, uh, savings into this business, if I lost everything and the business went under, I would still just be zero. Like I wouldn't be in debt and I was okay with that. And so that's what I've used all my life, like any investments, any kind of major deals, you know, taking a a huge flip in a a company going into different industries. I've done lots of different things where I've stepped sideways or stepped down to, you know, go forward with different jobs and stuff. I've done a lot of on-the-job training. And so for me, um, I've never been afraid of that as long as I kind of can map it out and go, well, if I lose everything under this deal or whatever, um, I know I'm always going to be okay because I'm that kind of person that if I have to go and work in a coffee shop, no, no, nothing to, against a coffee shop, but compared to a big corporate job or whatever, I'll do that if that's what I need to do to pay my mortgage. So, um, yeah, I think it's kind of innate in me. I love that concept of red line as well because even as you were talking through that, it is I'm hearing what you described as the learnings from your mum and dad in that concept. So the engineer of the the red line and the formula and the thinking it through, and then uh, the your your mum coming through in terms of that almost that resilience. You can do it. Is that that what did you say? Like the the battle, the ability to just keep going. That that she obviously showed you in terms of how she le- lived her life leaving home at 14 and having to survive. There's just that wonderful, even in that single concept, the two of them in there, uh, which is great. What is, can you share an example of where you've used that from a big business perspective or in one of your businesses? Um, Because I think sometimes we, um, you know, we look at stories of success and we see and we'll get onto what you're doing now and all we see is the glorious stuff. But Mm -hmm. the reality is there's times of failure. There's times when it is rubbish. What's what's your favourite red line moment where um it was almost like oh my goodness me the I'm learning so much from this version of failure if you want to call it that yeah yeah I think um well I mean I've had a lot of adversity in life like um probably more personally than in business to be honest and maybe it's because of the adversity I've had um personally then I can deal with the business stuff maybe easier than others I don't get too particularly stressed by it but the concept around, we can get a bit more into that adversity later as well if you like, but um, the concept around the redlining I think for me is I like to have all the information at, at hand. So the more I can understand, it's a bit how I still run business and the boards I sit on now as well. Um, so I've just joined a, a new ASX board in the last sort of two months and as a board member it's not usual for you to kind of get involved in the day-to-days of the business but I spoke to the chair and the CEO and I said, can I meet with every single one of the senior execs? I'm not going to get to meet them in person because we're in lockdown, but if I can have a one-to-one with them, you know, on um, on Zoom for an hour, that would be amazing because I want to understand what they do, what the division that they're running, how that works, what are their challenges, you know, and as a board member. And they were all thrilled, like absolutely thrilled that a board member would be even interested, you know, in their kind of areas, which is fabulous. But what that taught me and what how I my brain works, and this is my dad, like absolute engineer type, you know, the way the things are is I have to get down and understand how something works like into the nitty-gritty and then I go okay those pieces fit there and that structure and you know that part of the company and the way it kind of all mixes together and then I can pull myself out and go cool because then I can see 
when something happens down the line that it's like a, an error or a fault or a problem, I know where to go. Like I can follow the trail and go, okay, that's that's leading to this because I understand enough of it not to run the division or the company or whatever because that's not my job as a board member, but I can understand enough to make some really um, much more intelligent, you know, decisions around where we should head from a strategic level with the business. So I've always done that in everything I've any run, ever run. And I remember having a staff member I was a managing director for STA Travel um, for a few years and I ran Australia, Singapore, uh, New Zealand and uh, Thailand, so those sectors. So it was a lot of 650 staff across, you know, multi-regional areas. I reported to London as well. It was another complexity. But I remember having a particular manager that felt that I was a micromanager and I was like, ooh, I've never been called a micromanager and I'm not interested to run your division. Trust me, as the CEO. <laughs> but... Um, what it helped me to learn was actually that was more about their confidence and me asking questions. And what I, the more I dug, the more I knew that they didn't know what they were talking about. Mm. And so that was their defense of saying, well, you're a micromanager, get out of my space. And I'm like, no, no, I'll get out of my, out of your space when I know that I'm confident that you know what you're doing. And at the moment I know you don't, and you know, you don't. So let's work at how do we fix that? You know, is it more training? Is it, are you in the wrong job? You know, whatever. So um, it was an interesting sort of learning curve as well, but yeah, I mean, I use it um, in terms of failures and different things. If you say talk about that, um, I like to. I don't. I don't know. I've had lots of things that haven't gone maybe the way I wanted, but sometimes I'm quite spiritual, so I actually feel well, it was meant to happen that way, you know. And that's taught me something else. And you know, where I've had some. Uh, like I went for, um, I took a job in Geneva um, and I worked for a company for three months and fundamentally the culture fit of that business wasn't right for me. And I thought, wow, that was like, it was a really hard thing for me to do and to leave that, you know, that opportunity. And I felt a lot of shame around that for, for many years thinking, well, I've never failed at anything. I've never quit anything. That's not my style. But what I came to realise is that I would have always wondered if I didn't take that role. You know, I knew in my gut it wasn't right for me, but I took the chance and took it. And actually what I learnt in that three months was more, you know, like I did an MBA in ruthless business because that was a billion-dollar company on a global stage. I was 39 years old. Like it was huge, you know, and I was going in to run that company. Um, it was massive. So um, I learned a ton in that space. So whilst you could class that as a bit of a failure, I guess, in that sense, I learned so much from that experience that I would actually never change, you know, wouldn't change that again. Mm. I find it um, fascinating, that whole concept of failure, because when I'm asked that question, I, a bit like you, Michelle, I, go, I, I find it really hard to think of a failure because I actually do see every single thing that goes wrong. I'm actually learning from it. And if that hadn't have happened, then I'd never have learned. So it is quite an interesting concept, isn't it? And a, and a question that's uh, that gets asked. What I, what I love yeah, about sorry, what you... But on that, I was going to say, actually, um, Janine, is one of the things I have learned, and it's only been in the latter years, is around that comfort around failure. Because mm. as an A-type, like I was a you know high-level athlete, I, you know, I've been an A-type. Everything I've done is always about excelling, being better. You know, and that's that's me thriving in the in the world, and that's how I, um, you know, I think if I'm not learning or better, getting better, or you know, doing something new, then I'm I can't be standing still. You know, mm. that's just my makeup. But what um, a few years ago, when I I took a sidestep out of um, tourism and I wanted to um, proactively. Um, 
challenge myself in a different industry. And I'd sort of been headhunted over time to come and work in different sectors. And I was like, wow, I don't know anything about that sector or that. Why would they want me? Because I didn't really fully understand how as my kind of leadership skills were transferable. Oh, I didn't probably believe in that as much in those days as, you know, I knew it then could be um, until I did it, I guess. And so I went from tourism into um, marketing comms and helped um, start up an agency in Sydney. And um, the what that taught me from a startup aspect and um, working with lots of people in that sort of startup sector and we acquired, I did all the M&A for them in the last sort of couple of years and we acquired a number of companies and it was such a good lesson for me as a, you know, then by then I'm not a veteran but I'd been, you know, in the corporate world for 23, 24 years by then so I've got a fair bit of executive experience but I still wasn't comfortable with failure. To me it was still like that was a black mark on you, you know, you can't fail like that or if you, you know, stuff up or whatever. But what the, you know, the like that sector taught me, I guess, in terms of new businesses and, um, you know, they fail, fail fast, you know, get pick up, you're actually iterating. And it sort of just got changed the language for me, I guess, around instead of it being a failure, it's actually just an iteration or I'm getting feedback. Mm-hmm. I'm getting Mm. feedback from my customers or from the product or whatever. We're learning about it. And so, you know, there's, and there's lots of case studies in that now in terms of how a lot of the big tech giants do this, you know, they release something when they know it's only 70% ready. um, And they do that strategically because they get all their customers to work out what's wrong with it rather than it would take them another few years to test and, and, you know, cost millions of dollars to do all that testing. And then they still might get it wrong. And the market moves at a rate that they need to do that as well. So that was a good learning. Like, so now I don't really, I don't really class it as value, I guess. It's just feedback and it's a learning curve and, you know, it's helped me to try other stuff. It's an experiment. It's a, a test, a trial. It, it takes, um, cause I think about myself and how and the businesses I've run and the stuff that I do and the corporate and then moving into my own business. And I reckon, and I don't know whether it's a generational thing, but I was absolutely trained in the art of perfection. <laughs> and it was like, I remember that moment when I think it was I met Creel Price, um, who is an entrepreneur based here in Sydney. And I was asking him, about his businesses and how he operated and he said the same thing he literally said Janine 80% go just put it out there and it almost made me want to vomit in my mouth this thought of 80% go and honestly I've had to do quite a lot of work on myself to have that bravery to let it go but oh my gosh it frees you it frees you so much. And now I work with so many clients who are still in that space of perfection. I'm going, no. And like six months later, they're still waiting to launch something. It's oh. like, oh my gosh, the, yeah. the missed opportunity. Mm. Um, I'm curious from your 25 years of, of being in business, what techniques, because I'm sure there's people listening to it going, oh my gosh, that's me, that's me. How do I? What, what advice would you give to people listening to get comfortable with in failure or in imperfection because that's imperfection well, is a good one of mine as well <laughs> I think I don't know in failure, a company, that, babe, with the name that's what I've done it's called the wabi sabi series I know I know I know I know well about me. Uh, yeah let's go for the embracing the imperfection because I think you've almost got to embrace imperfection to be brave and courageous enough to deal to with the failure out there Spot on. yeah Spot on yeah it's and I think that it's been, you know, the word, but been a journey. But um, it has. Um, yeah, I think, you know, I had to challenge myself. One 
as you say, like just learning, unlearning. I think that's the thing, unlearning that it has to be perfect before it's released or before I show anyone or whatever. So what I did with that was actually just, it's just a reframing. So for me to call it something different or to um, give it a bit of a different vibe and a feel. So rather than saying, okay, I'm about to release my website and I know it's only 80% happy and I want to show Janine and I want feedback. So instead of me going, okay, I'm just about to launch my website, I'd go, well, I've launched my website because I need feedback from you guys. You know, it's like actually deliberately saying that I know it's not ready, but I actually would love you to give me feedback. And I think, you know, we're now in a world that we're so used to, especially with social media, getting that feedback and our clients and our customers and our friends and family wanting to give that or or you're kind of used to that. So that's made it easier as well, far back in the early days where we weren't able to make mistakes, you know. But I think also... um, you know, facing it up, you know, I know that I'm a perfectionist, have been all my life and that's my worst trait. I still class that as my worst trait, even though I love things to look nice and beautiful and whatever. Um, I started the business deliberately, you know, two and a half, two years ago called Wabi Sabi and a lot of people still don't even know what that means. My husband thinks it's the green paste that we eat when we have sushi. (laughs) (laughs) Darling, that's wasabi, not Wabi Sabi. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. But um you know, that's a Japanese philosophy around embracing imperfection. And ironically, it started with ceramics and pottery where the emperors, you know, drinking tea, put a deliberate floor in the glaze of the um, teacups where they would sit there and their tea ceremonies go for a few hours and they would sit and contemplate the floor in the glaze and to see the beauty within imperfection. And I was like in all my years of travel and tourism, I used to spend a lot of time in Japan and I'm like, that is amazing. I love that. And I need to embrace that more. So for years and years, that's always been a bit of a mantra for me, but never really shared. And then when I wrote the books around unusual topics and saying, well, I'm really imperfect. Um, You know, I've got lots of flaws and I've had lots of shit happen to me in life, but actually I don't let it define me. And I don't let that hold me back from having a true, fulfilled and amazing life. And, you know, I'm the only one that can change that. I truly believe we are the only ones that are in charge of our own destiny and our own attitude to life, despite what happens to us. Mm. You know, I've had a huge amount of, you know, dealt with a lot of death. I've had my own cancer. I've dealt with my own mortality. I've had lots of stuff. I've been um, fired or you know, had um, my roles made redundant twice in corporate, like big jobs, which was pretty, you know, confronting as a, as a corporate chick as well. And so all those things that I've dealt with over time, I'm like, yeah, I'm far from perfect, but actually that makes me all the more interesting. Mm. You know, that makes things life all the more interesting when they're not perfect. So I thought, well, instead of trying to run away from that, like I've done for 40 years, like let's hold it up and actually have a business called that. So I have to think about it every bloody day and go, okay, let it go. It's not perfect. Let it go. (laughs) But in that, right, so you talk now and you've touched on it briefly there that there's been this, and I, yeah, journey, but there's this process and, and experience of that traditional 25 years, corporates doing what we have to do to operate at that level. And you've touched on that now you live a pretty unconventional life and this is what's fascinating about you this combination of uh, a corporate part to you um you've you sit on board you're a board member of four you're on four boards right now um 
you also do ceramics, you've got a ceramic business and you're very creative, but that stuff doesn't happen overnight. What was the watershed moment for you? Um, when was that moment where you went, this is my philosophy, wabi-sabi resonates with me, I've got to do something about it. What was the watershed moment where you essentially took control and started creating your own life and living this unconventional life? Oh, it's such a big question because <laughs> it hasn't happened overnight, even though I think people think that. They look at me now and go, oh, wow, this just kind of all happened, especially in the last 18 months while we've been living with COVID. So, But um, if I think back to you saying that watershed moment, two things come to mind. Um, I mean, one, I've never really lived a normal, you know, like I don't really conform to what most people do anyway. As I said, Dad really instilled that in me, you know, as a young kid. You know, I've got my pilot's license. I raced motorbikes. You know, I did all different things that girls never did, like growing up. Um, and then, you know, when I was an MD, like I've I've sat on boards for 20 years and most of that time I've been the only female. So I'm used to mixing it, you know, around the table with boys, although I'm very proud and love being a woman, you know, proud of my femininity. And, um, but uh, so I think, you know, I... Uh, there's lots of ways I've been unconventional and um, the judgment that goes with that's interesting. And that was sort of where my first book came from as a, um, you know, as an MD of STA, as I said before, and uh, a lot of people judged me and felt that I didn't have kids and, you know, cause I was a corporate woman that felt that her career was far more important than having a family. And they didn't know my story. They didn't know that I'd had cancer and that that decision was made for me and it was traumatic because I always wanted to have kids but the judgment that went along with that, you know, again, non, um, non-conventional. So I started talking about that more, you know, sort of the global stage and tell, actually stop actually looking at people through the eyes of how you see the world because we all are very different and we all have very different experiences that define and, and how we should live our lives. So um, the first watershed for me I think was um, when my role as the managing director of STA um, it was it was made redundant and they moved the role uh, well they wanted to move the role back to London and um, I took that very personally Um, the you know the business was doing really well the um, you know we were like the most successful division in the world we were bringing in the most profit all the things that you would normally gauge you know how a business was going um, but they, it was because of that, I guess, that they felt it was probably the easiest thing, you know, in hindsight, I didn't realize that at the time, but, um, that was devastating to me. But what turned out from that was actually, I decided to take a break and I'd never, you know, in the 20 years of being on the corporate ladder as a female, like it's tough, you know, I don't give a shit what anyone says. <laughs> there is a ladder and there is a glass ceiling and we are slowly beating that down. But, um, as I sit on, you know, two of the new boards I've just joined, I am still the only female. So that stuff is not changing fast enough in my my view, but that's a whole other topic we can talk about another time, Janine. Um, so I took nine months off and I'd never done that in my life, in my career, and I did things for me for a change and that really shifted a lot of stuff. So that was the first time. Then coming into, you know, just two and a half years ago, so I'd been working for a company that I'd part-founded I'd been in the business for seven years and it was a family, mainly majority owned by a family. And the same thing happened. They made my role redundant and um, I was devastated. And I was like, whoa, like this, you know, in terms of a change again. So both of those, both of those circumstances were things that happened to me that were out of my control. 
And for an A-type person that loves to control things, like that's tough and that really affected when it's also something that, you know, again, many of us define ourselves as, you know, through our roles and our and our jobs and our careers, especially as we, you know, work up the hierarchy. And I'm not a mum, so I don't have the label of a mum and a, you know, well, I'm a stepmom. I should take that back. But uh, so, you know, that's a bit different again in terms of the amount of love and care and interest and zest I have for what I do for a living. I've always loved what I what I do. It's more than just a job for me. So those two times were were you know, watershed moments for me. And so instead I couldn't control it. I didn't make the decision. So I took after I kind of got through the trauma of it, which it is, you know, there's a grieving process you go through and you must go through that in my view. Um, Then I decided to take things in my own hands. And so the second time was actually I don't want to do this shit anymore. I don't want to be beholden to others. I don't want to run companies where I am busting my butt for other people I want to do stuff that makes my heart sing on a daily basis. I don't want to go to meetings that I don't want to be at. I don't want to be told by someone else what I have to do. And so that's when I started to really shift things and change stuff. And the boards have been on the board of Tourism Tasmania for six years now and I absolutely love it. I'm so passionate about Tasmania and that um, gives me such delight. That's a really lovely board. Um, and then I'm on two ASX boards and then another um, one that's not been released yet announced, so I can't really talk about that one. So they're very different. Um, they're very different industries, but it's that cut and thrust and that high-level strategic stuff that I love and that's where I get that from them. And also they pay the bills, mm-hmm. you know, so I have that, you know, that pay my mortgage and all those sort of elements. But that then allows me to do other things that are either more philanthropic or that I feel that I want to give back, you know, to others or that make my heart sing. And so the books, as you well know, you don't make money from a lot of books. So the books came out of that, which then led to the podcast because I wanted to have more conversations about things that people aren't talking about. And I'm like, we need to, you know, it's my, it's more about humanity and understanding. And if I understand you and your life and what makes you tick and your differences that, you know, you think so differently to me, but I need to understand that rather than, you know, hating you for it or thinking that we can't be together, like what a better world it would be, mm-hmm. you know, those uncomfortable conversations. So that's where that sort of came from. And then I just started pottery because I wanted to make my own dinner set and then COVID hit and so that kind of elevated and now I've got a thriving ceramic business and a, a studio, like a creative studio that I made here that brings all makers together and that gives this beautiful sense of you know, um, connection in community um, through creative endeavours, which is just makes, yeah, just makes me happy and smile every day. I love it. It's it's almost, um, yeah, it's, and it's come full circle, hasn't it? That combination of the corporate and the creativity, as you said, your mum and your dad is it's just, and equally it's inspiring. It's inspiring hearing the possibility. And I guess that leads me on to, my curiosity around what what have you learned through making that choice the choices that you've made that if you could almost say to yourself a few years ago or pass on to those that are listening um that would get us thinking about this concept that you have around uh the business the gift of imperfection the opportunity that you can actually create the life you want and you've just got to find that inner bravery to do it what what have you learned that you'd love to share yeah I think um 
how to say this um there's an element of being brave enough but there's also an element of taking responsibility for your own life Mm -hmm. and I do feel that a lot of people come up with excuses like oh I can't do what you do I can't you know travel the world or you know I can't do this because I've got a job or I can't afford it or I've got kids that you know all the reasons why and they're very valid reasons but it is it comes down to that and be the work that you do with people around really finding you know your true like what makes your heart sing and what do you truly want to do and it comes down to your values as well right what do you value more do you value you know money more than like travel or being happy in life or whatever like that's you know that's a value proposition for me and you I don't compromise on that like to me I need to be happy in no matter what I do and I know like I'm financially secure now but for a person that came from no money it's taken me a lot to build up to that but it doesn't define me Money gives me the ability to do interesting things and to have flexibility in my life, but uh, I know that I would always be okay if I had less money because I'm not, you know, like it doesn't define me or I don't like I don't have to, I don't know what the word is, but um, I'm not frivolous with it. You know, I'm probably um, I invest well and I still act like I don't have a lot of money. I think that's probably an interesting thing in life. But I don't know. I think that there's lots of reasons that you can come up with why you can't live the life you want to live. And um, to me, that's a cop-out. That's probably how I'll say it in life short. Mm-hmm. You know, when you, and I think probably having dealt with my own mortality, that was my most, we talk about a watershed mm-hmm. moment, that's probably my most significant thing in life. You know, although my mum died at 47, my dad died at 62, you know, no grandparents, no aunts, uncles, like all, I've lost a lot of people in my life, but I dealt with my own mortality at 31. And I think that, whilst I believe this is not our only life, again, spiritual, we are here on this life for a reason and we're here to live it. And we're not here to live it under the eyes or the guise or the expectations of others. And I think most of us do that every day. And I'm guilty of that. For many, many years, I lived a life that I thought I should be living and, you know, judged myself through those lenses of how other people would judge me. And then I'm like, whoa, hang on my life is not at all like them. You know, I'd feel guilty about all the travel I do or the nice things I can do because, again, I just like that humble kind of element, you know, you, it's not, you know, my parents are like, not, not nice to show off, you know, like you should be humble about that. And, and I'm like, well, actually, but I love my life and I want people to know that actually you can do other things like and that's not being, you know, horrible about that. It's actually just showing that you can do things a bit differently. And so I've kind of been leaning into that more and more and not, and being unapologetic about it, I guess, Janine, of saying, actually, I know our lives are different. You've got a pretty amazing life too. Like I would give anything to have children like Mm. that, you know, when people say, oh, you were able, and I'm like, you know what? I would have given anything to have kids. Mm, And that wasn't the path for me. But did I sit there and dwell and blame others and go, well, you know, that's you're so nasty and whatever. Like, no, I'm like, well, this is a life I've got. How can I make this my best life? And what do I need to do to do that? Mm. And so it's about being brave, about sitting down and looking, you know, what are the things? If you're not happy about something, change it. I used to hate Mondays, you know, when I was working in the corporate. Mondays were like that dread on a Sunday. And so I just shifted it up. I'm like, how can I change things? I'm going to do yoga first thing. I'm going to do piano lessons. I'm going to do stuff that lights me up and makes me happy. And I'm not going to start work till 12 o'clock. And I'm like, if I've got the flexibility to do that and shift around and I'll say, okay, clearly I've been a boss, so I'm able to move my things around a bit. 
But if you work for someone else, you can negotiate that stuff even more so now, given the yeah. you know, world we're living in. It's so much more flexible. So think about the things that don't light you up. Think about the things that, you know, do and that you want to do more of or that you would love to, you know, it might be a side hustle. It doesn't have to be your lifelong job. It might just be stuff that you can play more, bring more play into your life, I guess, that makes us happier as well. So, yeah, I think fundamentally it's all within us, Janine, is my belief, Mm -hmm. but we need to be realistic around the circumstances we're in and to stop making excuses because when mates say to me, oh, I can't afford it and I've got kids, I'm like, but all your kids go to private school. If you truly wanted to do that, you could make a shift in your life to afford to do it, but that's not your value. So work out what your values are and then align your life to those values and stop complaining about everything else because you're the only one that can change it. I just love that, all of that, and it just epitomizes for me what this concept of unleashing brilliance is that I write about, that we've, you know, all got so much more potential in us. And yet, and I think every single one of us does this. I think there's few individuals that are enlightened from childhood, but I think every single one of us finds ourselves at some point continuously or at moments uh, conforming to life that we're going, how on earth did I end up here? And um, yeah, I often say to, to people that I potentially work with, I go, I, if you're going to make excuses, we can't work together <laughs> because I just cannot bear excuses. You have this opportunity to take ownership and yeah, you might work for a bad boss, but you're choosing to stay. You might right. be working for a tough company, but you're choosing to stay. So if you frame it, if it's a bad boss, you'll learn lots of things from them. You'll yeah. learn how to not be a boss in the future. Like, yeah. so if you can't get out of it right now, take, yeah. reframe it and learn from it. Yeah. What is, what is the one thing that you do know to be true right now? Having gone through, uh, you know, your yeah. traditional corporate route. A bit there. Um, from a health perspective, I, you know, I believe you are the only person that knows your body best and to listen to it. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, that's a massive advocate thing that, you know, I do because of my kind of journey through um, some horrific health um problems where doctors have been negligent and so you know I really want people to take control of their own health and well-being um again that's your body it's you know we take more care of our cars and the fuel we put in cars than we do in our bodies um and then from a life perspective you know as I said I don't believe you we only get one life but you know you have been given this life for a reason and I think that you know I don't know, as I just said, take responsibility. Be be the person that you truly want to be. And when you talk about that sort of unleashing brilliance, you know, that the whole premise of this podcast, for me I believe that there is a ray of light and sunshine and brilliance in every single one of us. Mm-hmm. And most of the time it's us that's blocking that. You know, we mm-hmm. block that ourselves because we're too scared or too afraid of what people will think of us and or, you know, like what's the, there's a, um, a quote around that being, uh, you know, more afraid rather than failing, more afraid of how brilliant we could possibly be. I'm sort of re that. But it's, um, 
you know, it might take us a while to get there. Some of this stuff is not overnight. I think, you know, as I'm like you, I'm in my 50th year this year. Mm. So it's been interesting to reflect and to look at stuff. And I'm now the happiest I've ever been. I'm living a life, you know, like far beyond my expectations of what I could have ever imagined. Um, And that has been a bit of a stepping stone of lots of different things. And that's okay. But it's finally now that I'm getting out of my own way and stop, you know, I'm not blocking that, you know, sunshine within me and actually enjoying that and not giving a shit what other people think anymore. Because I think we're all, you know, we're all guilty of that. And that's what's holding us back most. Michelle, I wish we could just keep talking. We are going to have to do this again because I have literally got so many questions that I want to ask you, but we've run out of time. Um, I think that that overarching message of you've only got one life um, and it's up to you to choose to do whatever it is with it, but own it, reframe it, um, you know, and that that beautiful just analogy of shining shining that beautiful light that's in you is is just a perfect place to end. Um, you've said you've written multiple books. Um, people can find you at the Wabisabi series. Listen to you at the Wabisabi series. What are the books? Can you quickly share the title of your books? Because you've mentioned a few times they're a little bit off the wall, but they are fascinating yeah. reading. Yeah, well, three books, all, they're all short, sharp sort of books, a bit like me, like to uh, <laughs> shock people fast and furious. Um, it's okay not to have kids and that's around um, our, um, you know, parental status, not defining ourselves through our parental status. So even if you've got kids, people that have read it are like, wow, okay, that's interesting. I never thought of that that way. Um, the second book, Death Doesn't Have to Be Morbid, which is around life, death and learning to grieve. And the third book is Doctors Are Not Gods and that's around um, like taking responsibility for your own health and well-being. So, yeah, they're all about slightly uncomfortable topics, but that's the point. It's um, I don't tell you what to do. I just share my kind of journey through that and my stories and, and about those that have happened to me and my family um, for hope to hopefully kind of trigger um, people to think of things a little bit differently and to take more control of their own health, well-being and um, life in general because, um, yeah, it's... Uh, yeah, so many things that can happen to us, and um, we need to we need to look at that a little bit differently. I think um, the podcast is an extension of that. But I ask my guests, as you well know, since you've been a guest on my podcast, what is something that you want society to think more about? And so that's been yeah, a wonderful kind of grouping of so many different topics um, that range on the podcast as well. But yeah, love people to have a listen and um, give me some feedback. Michelle, it's been an absolute pleasure and uh, I'm so grateful to have you now in my world. Um, Keep spreading that message. I think now more than ever, it's absolutely needed. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, Janine, it's been my pleasure. It's just a delight and equally I'm stoked that we are um, in each other's orbit now. So uh, thank you again for having me. It's been fabulous to talk to you. We hope you enjoyed listening to The Janine Garner Show. Follow her blog, purchase her books, or find out more. Visit her website, janinegarner.com.au. Brilliant people, extraordinary results.